Welcome to the Conscious Clinician Podcast, where we have honest conversations about the triumphs and challenges of pelvic health physical therapy. Each week, we bring you inspiration and practical tips to thrive in your work. And now, here's your hosts, Dr. Monica Stefanovich and Dr. Sammy Steele. Hey, Sammy. Hey, Monica. So, thinking about today's episode, I kept coming back to the word resilience because 2020 has tested everybody, bar none. This was the craziest year of my life. I just did not expect everything that happened this year to happen and to be occurring on such a global scale. So today, how about we dive into resilience together? Love it. I think we, we all need a little bit more of that right now. And we've certainly had our practice with it. I think sometimes we forget that we have been resilient. Like you have survived 100% of your worst days. You know, it's it's probably an Instagram quote I read. And I do still think of that. Like we are all here. Monica, what does resilience mean to you? Yeah, there's such a wide range of places to go with this first off. I think my best definition right now, and I'm pretty sure I read this somewhere and I'm paraphrasing it, is persisting in the face of adversity. I think of it as shifting from surviving to thriving because I think survival mode gets us through everything. And when I think of resilience, there's an element of survival Because you're only resilient in the face of a challenge. So there's always something you're grinding against, so to speak. However, I think when someone is highly resilient, they've still found a way to keep the essence of themselves fueled and engaged in the midst of that. When I think of times where I haven't been resilient, I almost think of losing key parts of myself, like Mm. maybe not drawing on my creativity as much or something was lacking in a way. What do you think of that? When we're in survival mode, we are kind of just going back to basics and we don't have a lot of that extra room for creativity. We don't have a lot of extra brain space for the extra things that make us who we are and make life worth living. In my mind, the term resilience had been like a bolstering against adversity. So you're bolstering yourself and building yourself up the best that you can to handle something negative that comes your way so it doesn't completely destroy you and make you fall apart. But I think that that extra layer of also thriving on top of that is a really great thing to strive for. Yeah, I like how you said bolstering because the other way I've thought of resilience is the load versus capacity. Can you picture that graph from tissue loading? Like when load exceeds capacity is when we develop pain or tissue damage, however you want to take it. And I thought of that this morning while I was reflecting for us. And I thought when our load is more than what our survival or better yet than survival, our coping capacity is then we're at risk of burnout and all these other, we'll call them drains on our system. And so it's not necessarily the amount of load because I think the amount of load for every person is different, right? Like what might 
require me to practice all my resilience skills for you might not actually or vice versa. So it's hard to say like this event is going to require you to be resilient. I think if we exclude all the huge things that we can think of, right, like a death, loss of a home or job or something, when when we take out those big events and we're focused on the day-to-day things that require us to be resilient, that's where we have a lot of variability and loading. And again, our capacity to handle that type of event is going to vary. And we can build up our capacity just like we practice with our patients. I think there are things that we do that increase our capacity and there's things that decrease our capacity. And I think we can, to some extent, affect the load upon us. How much and to what extent will probably vary depending on the incident. If I'm overburdened at work because I've said yes to a million things, then I can affect that load. I could do something to change it. If I just suffered a loss of a person in my life or or some other event, there's probably not much I can do to change the load of that. So I'm really going to have to focus on my capacity building at that time. It's interesting you bring up the things you can and can't change because in my research on resilience, I encountered a common theme, which was people who feel helpless, people who feel like they can't change a situation are the ones who often lack resilience. Because Mm. you think about those experiments that they did on animals where they would shock them repeatedly. And if there was Mm -hmm. no way for the shock to stop, then the animal would just give up and they just become helpless. Even if there then is a solution that's introduced, the animal doesn't even find that solution. It's a horrible paraphrasing of that study. But basically, the, the message is, is that humans are probably the same way if we're constantly getting barraged with things and we feel like we have no way to stop it and no self-efficacy, I guess, to stop that Mm -hmm. overloading or that damage that's occurring, then we're just going to fall into despair a little bit. And that seems like the opposite of resilience. And I think that there's experiences we have in life that might teach us that we are helpless. And I think of trauma, big T, little t, persistent traumatic experiences, especially like those things that you might not put a label to. And definitely the things that you can put a label to, sexual abuse, abuse of any kind, traumatic losses, etc. And when we get to that point or we see someone in that point, just giving them the basic self-help advice is not enough. Like you mentioned those animals weren't looking for the lever or the button to push that would stop whatever shock was happening. They, they're not looking for it. Kind of like we talked about with pain catastrophizing, your brain actually remodels to where you're not looking for solutions. You have, in a spiritual way, like you've lost touch with your creativity, with that thing that would make you think of a problem in a new light or try something different. And so I think it's about reconnecting with that. And I think we can do that in different ways. We might need help to do that. I actually would go so far as to say, we do need help mm-hmm. when we're in that type of space, when we have that battle with an external locus of control, we need to find and probably have help to find that internal sense of focus. And that's interesting you bring it up because to a certain extent, I do think that locus of control is a personality characteristic. 
people naturally have different levels of it, nature versus nurture. I'm not sure, but I see it in my patients and all the people in my life. There's different levels of what they think they can influence. And it's interesting. Sometimes there's things people feel very competent in influencing and other things that they don't, right? Like they might feel really skilled at work and really have an internal locus of control. But then when it comes to like relationships or social aspects, it's all gone, right? Like they have very little influence of that. I wonder what have you seen with your patients? What do you observe about their resilience and how it affects their healing journey? I think about somebody who is really affected by minor setbacks, somebody who catastrophizes small things that some of us would look at this small event. You are route running and you tweak your hip a little bit. To them, it's a big deal because they feel like it's out of their control. It's something that might set them back a long ways. They already feel so frustrated and so helpless in the face of their pain that this extra little setback means so much more. Those patients, I find they stop doing that problem solving for themselves. If you ask a question like, what did you do after you got this flare up of pain? They say, I don't know. I just, I was in pain. And that's an interesting and very telling answer because people who didn't really think to do anything, they didn't think to maybe put on ice or heat or do some of the stretches that you two talked about in your PT session. I think of them as those animals in those studies, right? They're not looking for the off switch because they are so helpless in the face of their pain and they've stopped problem solving through it. Mm -hmm. And it is interesting, that question of, is it inherent, this quality, or is it something that develops in the face of repeated trauma, whether it's more of an emotional trauma or if it's just this trauma of being in chronic pain? That I don't know. Well, in my reading, it is exacerbated. By trauma. Like anytime there's big T, little t trauma, it essentially creates some level of helplessness within us. Because if we were able to deal with that event, it probably wouldn't be perceived as traumatic. If there was something we were able to do in that moment, right? And this is not to put blame on anyone. So I hope it's not sounding that way. I'm not saying if you experience trauma, it's because you didn't do the right thing. But it's to say the trauma response causes us to shut down. And so action is the missing variable, right? That's what I've taken away from trauma, pain-based research. And definitely it's more complex than I feel like I could just explain right now. But there's a shutting down that occurs And that shutdown starts to remodel our brain. And then we take actions that are further proving that we are out of control in a way. And so it's this new neural pathway that we have built up. And it is damn hard to change. Mm -hmm. I know personally, I had a pretty external locus of control (laughs) in, in a lot of areas, I would say. And when I think of times where I was resilient, I actually identify those times in retrospect. I don't know if I could have told you in the moment I am resilient. But looking back now, I'm like, oh, I was more resilient during X, Y, and Z time. And the times where I was resilient, I think like my level of social support and engagement was much higher. 
I had perhaps a a coach. I've been a huge fan of personal coaching. So I've had a coach or a therapist that I've worked with at different times. I had more engagement with my family and my friends. I had more social events on my calendar and not more things to attend, but for me, vacations. I'm actually pretty terrible at planning vacations, Sammy. (laughs) Terrible in the sense that I don't think ahead to them. I think they're a great thing. I want to do them. And it's like something I don't take the time to plan. I think in a way, just as a off comment, that might be because my family didn't really take vacations. Like we didn't quite have the money for them. So they were sporadic and... And few and far between, honestly. And I think there's a part of me that is just so used to like, yeah, vacations are sporadic and few and far between. And between them, you work really hard because my parents are first generation Polish immigrants. And so I've always seen them usually working two to three jobs, but I've always seen them working really hard. And rest was this thing you did after the work was done. And it's interesting because I see that as a part of me and the way I approach my work. Like you work really hard and then when the work is done, you rest. But I work a different type of job than my parents. So this this is gonna tie us back to resilience. My parents have jobs where they're only on when they're at work. My mom works in a grocery store, she's a cashier, and my dad works as a machinist. So they can only do their jobs when they are at their jobs. And I'm a physical therapist, and that is knowledge-based work. And the thing with knowledge-based work is there's no defining on and off switch because the pursuit of knowledge in and of itself adds value to your work. So even though I'm not in the clinic, I might need to finish documentation. I may need to look up something for my patient. I may need to make phone calls. I may be attending conferences. and Like, my mom doesn't have to attend continuing education courses. And that's great that we have it. I I want our healthcare providers to be well-trained. But it's another example of if she's off. And if I'm off, I'm not necessarily off unless I make that switch myself. And that switch was easier to make when I also earlier in my life, worked jobs that were like that, lifeguarding. I'm not a lifeguard, but I'm not lifeguarding. Waitressing, being in a store and working. And I found this difficulty with the off switch when I started doing knowledge-based work. And now that I work from home, it's 100% on me to create an on and an off switch because there is no definition around it. And I think now that I also serve in roles like having a leadership position within the residency, again, there's no office that I go to where I am the mentor coordinator and then I am done and then it's over. There's always things running in the background that you could work on in our digital age. And that is a challenge to my resilience. I have to remember that I have to plan breaks and make sure that I've got vacations at regularly occurring intervals because otherwise it's hard to shut down. In college, like I would work really hard and then breaks would come. And so I'd have a summer break and a winter break and a spring break. 
but I don't have that as a PT. (laughs) There's no break, you know? So that mentality of like, work hard as long as you need to, and then rest hard when you get to, just does not at all work with the experience that I have in my job. Yeah, that's very interesting. I didn't know what your parents did. So thanks for sharing. And I think that the other missing element in that too, is that your parents in the lines of work that they're in, interestingly, my dad's also a machinist. I thought that was kind of funny, but there's not as much of that human element of absorbing other people's emotion and their worries and all of that stuff too. So not only are mm-hmm. you in a job where you're constantly having to update your knowledge and to be thinking about work and trying to better yourself, but you're also saddled with a lot of stuff from your clients too, which is something mm-hmm. that maybe, you know, I, I don't know how you and your family talked about this stuff growing up, but I would imagine that if your parents weren't in that kind of field, that maybe they wouldn't even know to have that kind of conversation around boundaries with relationships and things like that. It's just, it's a really interesting thing to pull back from the past and reflect on. Yeah. I think what you're describing is practicing good psychological hygiene. Yeah. And it's, I didn't learn how to do that. Like, I know that I have to brush my teeth twice a day in order to not get cavities, but I didn't know that I needed to not absorb my patient's emotions and instead hold space or to draw boundaries Mm -hmm. or to make sure that I refuel my own tank with activities that are truly energizing for me. Like that is a journey. I think that well-being is a constant journey and never a destination. And resilience is like the health gauge of your coping skills at any given time. If you're resilient, it tells me your coping skills are working really well for that situation and they might need to change. Like when a pandemic happens, I think a lot of people would probably say they felt like they were thriving before it and then their whole world was turned upside down. Yeah, totally. I'm curious with this work from home that you're describing, how have you had to change your routine to draw those boundaries? How have you had to structure your life differently or make different coping skills in order to maintain some sanity with 40 hours a week of online patient care? That sounds really challenging. Yeah, great question. A couple of things that have helped me is one, I do need to shower and get dressed for work in the morning. There's something about a morning shower that I think reminds me maybe of my old routine, but it tells my brain we're doing something new. And some days I do wear sweatpants to work. I'm not going to lie to you, but at least having a nicer top, still doing my makeup, at least a little bit, doing my hair, those types of things tell me this is different than when I'm relaxing. So having those elements of my routine, there is a huge difference for me when I don't do my makeup versus take that time to get ready and making sure as best as I can, that I'm not just running into work at 7.58 a.m. It wasn't great before if I ever had to do it, and now it's definitely not. And to that point, planning my day, because I haven't been at 100% utilization or productivity, which means I've had more projects. And with projects, there's a lot of soft deadlines sometimes. Not all of these projects are like, submit to your manager by this date. And that means juggling several different things. I'm not a natural planner if left to my own devices either. 
I make lists and then I forget where the list is. So then it's not really helpful that I made it in the first place. (laughs) But I do journal a lot. And I found that scheduling my day, I write today at a glance and then I write my day out. And I even go so far as to write my work day out and to say, okay, I have a patient at 845 and then I don't have a patient from 930 to 1030. What is it that I want to do with that time? Because if I don't do that, I'm actually probably going to not use my time very well. Let me just say that. (laughs) Yeah, I'll get sidetracked into something else and I'll forget that I actually had these tasks that I wanted to get through. And switching over my setup, I have two laptops. I have a work laptop and a personal laptop and I don't do personal things on my work laptop. And if I'm doing anything work-related, like even teaching a weekend course for the residents, I use the work laptop and I leave my personal devices for my personal use. So that's a really firm boundary. And that means my desk is pretty much set up for work Monday through Friday. And then on the weekends, if I'm on there because I'm writing or playing around or doing something else, I switch over, I take off the mouse, the headset, the laptop. I clear it all out. I put it in the closet so I don't see it. And I put on my personal things on there. So that's another boundary. And I take my breaks. I don't work through my breaks. I take two half hour breaks in my day right now because I'm in central time and I still work Pacific time. I trade a lot of California-based Googlers. So when I have my two half hour breaks, I need to take those breaks. And I'll put on a show sometimes, I'll take a nap, I'll go for a walk, I'll just do something different, call a friend, something else during that time. It sounds like you've developed these really firm, both physical, like with the desk idea and the work laptop, and then also emotional boundaries with work. Do you ever find that you get tempted to work more on the weekends or do documentation off hours? Or (laughs) has that been a problem during the the pandemic for you? All the time. It's never not a temptation because nobody is sitting there counting my hours minute by minute and being like, oh, you clocked in, you didn't clock in. I'm not PRN. So there is definitely a big trust that my employer has to say you're going to be productive during these times and there has to be accountability on my part to be productive during those times. But definitely... I'll be like, oh, I'll just document a half hour later. And And I think it's hard, mostly the mental disconnection of thinking about work, which is something that I already experienced before working from home, was that never-ending to-do list or those Sunday scaries. Okay, this week's coming up. What, What didn't you do for this week? Or what do you have to do for this week? So I think for psychological hygiene there, it's making a list, making a plan, and also at a certain point, it's honestly meditation. And I'm just not going to go down the what if, what if, what if with my brain right now. Thank you for that reminder. Yes, I did not send that email. If it's really important, then let me set a reminder and put it in my planner. And if it's just this ruminating thing, I can't worry about it. If I'm not planning it, if I'm not doing something about it, 
I have to let it go and remember that it's okay to really refuel and recharge. I don't know about you. I felt when I was working 100% online at the beginning of the pandemic, because you're not seeing a full caseload at any given time. And with that added pressure of the pandemic feeling insecure, like, was my job still going to be here in six months? Am I still going to have a paycheck coming in? I almost felt like there was more pressure to get things done and work off hours. So there was a pressure to be producing more projects or presentations or making updated patient handouts or an informational class for patients. And I felt like if I could produce enough of that kind of stuff, I could demonstrate some sort of value to the company at a time when things were feeling very unsteady. I felt like that was a big strain at the beginning of the pandemic on myself. And I don't know if you experienced that too, but there is this different vibe to just seeing an eight-hour day of patients versus having all these additional projects and having it be a loose deadline and something that you're running by yourself. Yeah, I think you really hit on it. I felt like I have to be doing something all the time. Whereas back in the clinic, if I had a patient cancellation, it would be like, yeah, I'll finish my note. I'll take care of what other activities I have, tasks, and then I might go for a walk to honestly give myself a break, like quick walk around the clinic and come back. And I think it's actually been harder to rest in some ways, like I've needed it more because being on video for several hours a day is mm-hmm. exhausting. <laughs> I, <laughs> I hated it. <laughs> my, my dirty little secret is that every now and then someone has a really poor connection. We have to talk on the phone and I'm just like so relieved because that camera drain of having to be on while interacting with them is Oh, it's just annoying. Oh, seeing your own face is so hard. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I never had to look at myself while treating people before. And now I'm like, stop looking at me. So distracting. You know, and and looking at a computer screen Mm -hmm. more. Like it is literally more draining to your eyeballs. So I feel you. I think rest became hard. And a couple one-to-ones with my manager, several one-to-ones actually, she's like, your to-do list for between now and the next time we meet is actually stressing me out. I'm not the one who has to do it, but I'm concerned for you. There are too many things on here. And that was shocking and so helpful because I realized how hard I was being on Mm. myself. I was like, what do you mean? Like the first time she said it, I remember my reaction was like, what? I am hardly doing enough. What do you mean this is too much? And she was like, no, we actually have to move some of these things. You can't be doing all these things right now. And from that experience, I realized I had to have a lot more compassion for myself. It helped me become more realistic with what I needed to do and also what my company expected Mm. of me. Is I think what you're speaking to is like a lot of uncertainty. Yeah, totally. And if we don't know what to do, like we're going to try to find some sense of control in it. You're going to create your own safety by trying to do as much as possible and proving your worth. And that's another recipe mm-hmm. for burnout, <laughs> you know, because you're draining yourself. You're giving of yourself so much and even so much more than you need yeah. to. I remember... I think it must have been a couple months into the pandemic when I was fully in the work at home mode and seeing patients fully online and feeling that pressure to perform. When I saw this quote on Instagram that made me take some pause, which was, you don't need to make the most out of a global pandemic. And I was like, wow, 
I've been really feeling that. I've been really feeling like, okay, well, now's the time I got to take some MedBridge courses and I got to be recording mm-hmm. every minute of every day and, and demonstrating my worth. And when I took a step back and looked at kind of the messaging from the company, the messaging was, hey, guys, this is a really rough time. Let's do our best. It wasn't, hey, guys, you have to be performing 60 hours of work and a 40-hour work week. And I, I had been taking it that way because of my stress and because I needed to feel like I was controlling something. But I saw that quote and I was like, wow, okay, maybe I can just take a little step back. It didn't solve everything, but I think that it summed up so perfectly how I had been feeling. And I was like, wow, I really have been putting that pressure on myself more than I thought. Yeah, it's two totally different energies because you're speaking to achieving more in the midst of a very draining, stressful, uncertain, honestly terrible experience. And then I see the flip side of it, which is some people really did gain back so much more time. I know I did in a way because I didn't Mm -hmm. have to commute two hours every day, really like an hour and a half to two hours. So suddenly I was like, hold on a minute. I do have time to exercise or to call someone and talk on the phone. I'm definitely enjoying that part. But finding something that refuels you is different than doing, 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 giving, 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 because that's the energy of scarcity. And we already run on that. Like how many of you wake up in the morning and the first thing you do is think of all the things that you haven't done yet. Mm -hmm. So when you have that happen, you're already at a deficit in the day. And then we're already living in a culture that says you have to do more to achieve. And you have to have more to be enough. It's not enough that you have a life that you enjoy. You also have to make sure that it looks the way that people expect it to look. And so we're always chasing something, it seems. Like, what is the thing that will make me happy? It's a very dangerous question. Yeah, yeah. And something that's really helped with my own personal resilience at times has been not necessarily, not that I don't want to be happy, but not desperately seeking that happiness as much has actually made me happier. I think when we have that pressure to always feel happy, for things to always be perfect, then we lose some resilience when things don't go the way that we wanted them to. I think that's... And things are going to suck sometimes. Yeah, things are going to suck sometimes. And I think that's something that we need to accept in every realm of life. And I think that social media has made that hard because everything looks perfect all the time. And we have become less willing to discuss our failures and for things to just be shitty. It's funny even noticing how I interact with people in my personal life. Like I I have a very hard time admitting like, oh, it's not so great of a day. We signed on this morning and you asked me how I was and my, my reflex response is, oh, it's good. And then I was like, actually, no, I fell off my bike yesterday and my hands are completely wrecked right now. And I like didn't sleep very well. I hit my knee. It's not like I'm gonna die. It's not the end of the world. But I have a very hard time going, hey, it kind of sucks today. <laughs> and I, I think that's, yeah. um, that's keeping us from being resilient because we're putting up this front that takes a lot of energy too. Yes, we are all human. And gosh, I don't think we were always meant to be happy, which is like shocking. I, <laughs> five years ago, Monica would have been like, what? <laughs> and yeah, everything that I'm studying says happiness is a temporary emotion and what you want to seek is congruency and integration in your life. 
does what you believe match up with how you act? And if they're not congruent, that's where pain happens because pain is the alarm signal that says something needs to change. I think that's true of emotional pain and I think that's true of physical pain. And now I try to be proud of myself. Like I ask, what would I be proud of at the end of the day? And that feeling bolsters my resilience in a way that happiness from eating chocolate for a moment is much more fleeting. But to be proud and say, I'm proud of the way I handled my work today, or I'm proud of this project that I'm working on, that feels, God, that feels good and a deeper kind of like sinks into my bones type of a way. Whereas happiness is like a gentle breeze on the like skin. satisfaction, I feel like. Feeling yeah. satisfied with yourself and satisfied with your day versus like happy. I don't know. It feels like a different, deeper kind of thing. And I'm reminded of these things that you see online. Live each day to the fullest and make sure that you're striving for happiness every second of every day, blah, blah, blah. And it's funny, you start to reflect on that. And it's, if I was living every day to the fullest, that would be so stressed. Like there needs to be some room for routine and quiet time and reflection. And I think there's a lot of pressure to be doing everything new, 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 go, go, go. And you think about the advice that parents get for their kids, right? Which is establish a routine, give a safe home base. Adults need that too. Adults need that quiet time and that stability. And I, I don't think that we always give ourselves that benefit sometimes. I think reparenting is a hot topic. Treating your inner child <sighs> triggered. <laughs> I am like dabbling in that and, and have encountered that in different ways in the last two years. And I think you really summed it up as we have to be our own parents sometimes. We cannot just do the things that feel good always because that might not help us in the long run. And I am a feelings-based person. I love personality quizzes, so I'm going to expose myself here. I'm an ENFP and an Enneagram 4, the self-preservation subtype. And if that sounds French, don't worry about it. And if that means anything to you, this will make a lot more sense. Those are tools that have helped me understand myself better, by the way. So that's all that means. One of my greatest Achilles heels is that I'm a very deep feeler. And I believe my feelings to be data. So if I feel bad, it means things are bad. And if I feel good, it means things are good. And you can already see that is going to be tough. If I'm trying to create anything that I'm really satisfied of, especially in the creative process, because I think if it's not feeling good, it's wrong. I need to quit it. I need to stop it. I need to change it. I need to abandon it. And Brene Brown calls it like day two just sucks because day one, you're excited and you're energized and you have the idea. And day two, you're like, how is this actually going to work? I don't know what I'm doing. Am I enough? All of that stuff comes up. I've had to learn that pursuing what feels good usually leaves me dissatisfied, which then leads me to trying to pursue more feel-good mm. things. And at this point, I am a dog and I'm literally chasing my tail. <laughs> 
and just going around and around because the more dissatisfied I am, the more uncomfortable that is, right? And what did I just tell you? Yeah. The more uncomfortable I am, the more I try to do something that is the opposite of that rather than leaning into, yeah, folding laundry is boring and also it's great self-maintenance because tomorrow I will have my favorite pair of sweatpants to wear. It's actually a good thing I don't need to spend right now trying to find a show that feels good or try to start something up again. Because I get excited by ideas. So if you ever need an idea person, like definitely get in touch with me. And besides ideas, I am learning to show up for day two with a different mindset that doesn't say, oh, a bad feeling means stop. More like it's data. Monica, this is so weird. I literally have the exact opposite Myers-Briggs personality from you. Yeah, Stop it. Yeah, ISTJ. Oh. So what's funny is you're describing this, right? You're telling me like you're constantly pursuing the things that feel good. And if it doesn't feel good, it's like hard to stick with it. I have the exact opposite problem where I ignore the feelings, ignore it, ignore, ignore, ignore. And something feels horrible and I'm just like continuing to plow through because I've decided I want to do that thing. And I'm left going, why am I doing this thing? Why did I sign myself up for this? I find that's where a lot of my great dissatisfaction comes from in life where I'm blindly pushing through something that I'm miserable in because I feel like it's this commitment that I've made. It's like very rigid way of thinking where I'm not paying attention to the feeling behind it. So I'm trying to develop the opposite skills from you, which is, I think is super funny. I was just like <laughs> listening to you speak and I was like, wow, what, what must it be like? <laughs> well, you know, on the flip side, I'll answer that. You probably didn't mean it literally, but I'll go there is it looks like a slew of half started things that mm-hmm. don't get done, which actually is like incredibly frustrating to me as a person. And half-assing things is like incredibly frustrating Mm. to me as a person. But when I rely on my feelings, that is exactly what I do. It's like I don't finish and I half-ass something. And I would say that I'm meticulous and I expect a lot of intention. Like I want something to be well thought out, well curated, well presented. That is just something I love. And Sometimes that can be a little perfectionistic, but when I'm not doing that and I'm just like throwing something together, it is actually the fastest way to annoy myself and probably to piss myself off, like hands down. So that's what it looks like. And then on your end, tell me about it. What does your side of this coin look like? It looks like a lot of things that I sign myself up for that I feel like I should do. I have a case of the shoulds. I Mm -hmm. should do this. I should do that. Mm -hmm. I need to do X, Y, and Z in order to be enough. And then when I finally hit that wall where I'm so overburdened or I'm so overwhelmed or burned out that I have to stop and reflect, I go, why am I doing that thing? Why did I say yes to that? I'm not really enjoying it. I'm pushing through just because I started the thing and I'm not taking the Mm -hmm. time to reflect on it. I think for myself getting in touch with the emotional side of it, making some time for just enjoyment and creativity is is really satisfying. So I find that sometimes when I'm really stressed, I'll get into this mode where I think I don't have time for that hobby right now. And that's a big red flag for Mm -hmm. myself because if I don't have time for this like creative pursuit, 
I'm getting more and more into this robot mode. And I think that's one of the things that comes along with the the ISTJ, which is the logistician. That's the name of it. So it's this like analytical, robotic, Mm -hmm. like non-reflective kind of mode. And that's where I can go when I'm in my tougher times. But if I could take a step back and do something a little bit different, that's not as natural for me. I tend to have a better balance with it. Yeah. And that's funny because for me, I create the better integration when I have a plan and I do something and I break it out into chunks and I don't take my feelings at face value. Oh, this is what this means. And instead, I have to do a lot of reframing because I feel so many feelings and I'm aware of feeling them. Like I also have a great poker face though. The feedback I've gotten is that people can't tell when I'm really stressed By the time people know I'm stressed, I have already been stressed for so long. It's like you are seeing me at a breakdown. Unless you're like living with me, you might see it sooner then. But I have been feeling these emotions. And some of these emotions I'm learning are like things that everybody experiences in life. And I used to think that it meant something was wrong. So I spent a lot of time trying to figure out like what was wrong with me, (laughs) which You can imagine it as the opposite of resilience because you're saying, I am not resilient. I am not resilient. I need something else to become resilient rather than, again, facing the fact that we have survived 100% of our hardest days. And some of those we've really been resilient through and some of those have been purely survival mode. And actually both are fine. You know, it's all part of the journey. I think that's such an important point. You might be resilient sometimes and you might be falling apart at others. And it doesn't mean that you're not a resilient person. It just might mean that your emotional hygiene, so to speak, is not up to par at that point in time. Maybe you were preoccupied Mm -hmm. with other things or you were in a different space and weren't able to bolster yourself or build up those reserves as well. It's funny. I think sometimes we assume that when we reflect on these things and we do this work that we're going to fix it, right? There was this period Mm -hmm. in time It was my first year of PT school, which I think for a lot of people is like a really stressful time. And I had this period of six months where I felt the best I've ever felt in my entire life. Like from an emotional wellness Mm -hmm. perspective, I felt like everything was firing perfectly. I was doing really well in classes. I was very engaged and excited to be there and learning a lot. And I was exercising and I was holding really clear boundaries around my personal time. And I wasn't watching any TV and I was like a total minimalist. And I had like a a capsule wardrobe, like a uniform that I would wear. And I just felt like very organized and efficient and everything just felt really good. And I was like, I uh-huh. have solved life. I feel so good. I was like, I thought I was like patting myself on the back. I was like, oh yeah, I figured it out. Life is going to be so easy now. And then I'm not really sure what happened. Something gave. Maybe I got a little less vigilant about emotional mm-hmm. health. Maybe I got a little less vigilant about keeping these really healthy routines that I was in. I didn't see it happening. And then six months later, mm-hmm. I was super depressed and feeling horrible. And it's just funny, like, I think we can have these ebbs and flows and it really is hygiene. I love that phrase. I actually haven't heard that before because you can't just stop brushing your teeth. You can't brush it once and be like, cool, I'm good forever. And I think I did that to a degree. And so that was a really painful (laughs) wake up call. It's such a funny thing because I have this shining example in my mind of something that I would love to get back to. And I feel like I've been clawing my way back ever since, if that makes sense. And I still don't feel like I'm fully there, 
things have come up. School got busy and I did a residency and I struggled with burnout and mm-hmm. I was commuting a lot and working long hours. And I feel like I'm getting much closer, but it's just so funny that things can change so quickly to the good and then swing back to the less resilient so quickly. Okay. I'm going to play a little role here and say, what does that good place for you look like right now? I guess what I'm saying is, are you imagining that it would be like it was then just superimposed on top of your current life? Because I also, I didn't know you in college. Yeah, I know so much of your life has changed. Pretty much yeah. everything about it has changed. The fact that you're married, you're a working professional, you have a salary now that you didn't back then. <laughs> yeah. Like everything is different. So I wonder how are you imagining these two worlds to blend? There are two things that really pop out to me that were really positive in mm-hmm. that time. One of them I already touched on, which was habits, like healthy habits. I eliminated a lot of decision fatigue from my life by, you know, I have a few outfits that I wear. It's easy for me to grab something in the morning. I've already cooked all of my lunches for the week and I grab the lunch out of the fridge. Things like that really help to make your day smooth because you've helped, like past Sammy has helped out future Sammy, right? So those were things that I was doing very actively yeah. to make my, my school week a lot easier and smoother so that I could really focus on school and I could focus on studying. And those things were really helpful. So I think that's something that I could definitely get back into. And I have been, and it's already been like, oh, wow, yeah, that is really nice when I wake up in the morning and my lunch is ready for me. And then the other thing that was absolutely huge during that time that I am working on slowly is this kind of pessimism about the world. I tend to go into pessimism when I'm in my lower emotional state. There's this personality test. I I can't remember what it's called, but basically they talk about being in your balcony or being in your basement. There's different personality types out there. And if you're operating at your highest levels, you're feeling really good, you're on your balcony. And if you're maybe more depressed and you're not operating Mm -hmm. well, those basement qualities will come out. And it's different for each personality type. So for me, when I am in my basement... I tend to be more pessimistic. I tend to be angrier at the world. One way that comes out is I'll be irritated by things that are small. And I noticed this right before I had my really good period of time. I was walking around UCSF. It's a college campus and it's a busy medical campus and it's in a city. And somebody had locked their bike to a signpost and it was blocking the sidewalk. Small, right? Not a big deal, whatever. But I walked by and I was like, what an asshole. Like, who blocks the sidewalk with their bike? Who do you think you are? You think the world revolves around you and you can't even move your shit out of the way for someone who might be in a wheelchair and needs to get by on the sidewalk. Oh, my God. I was just so mad about it. Like, violently mm-hmm. angry. I saw this bike and I was just, like, fuming about it. And I walked, like, half a block down the street and I was like, whoa, that's not good. That person who locked up their bike has no <laughs> idea that you're so pissed. They don't have any idea. They're probably having a great day, whatever, doing their thing. And I'm Mm -hmm. the only one that's affected by this anger that I'm having. And I kept thinking back to that that quote. I, I looked it up actually before this, which is, never attribute to malice that which is adequately explained by stupidity. So that one's called Hanlon's Razor. And I started applying that as like a life principle. And I changed it from like stupidity to more ignorance. So Every time I'd find that, I'd have that flash of rage, whatever. Like some dude on the Muni was manspreading and I was mad that he was in my space. 
I'd be like, he probably doesn't realize. He doesn't know. He's just living his life. He's the star of his own show, just as I'm the star of mine. And at first it was like, I'd be saying this like through gritted teeth. And then over time though, <laughs> I started to get, it started to internalize a little bit more until there was a day where I walked past mm-hmm. a bike kind of in a similar position. And I was like, oh, doesn't even bother me, whatever. And that was one of the big things that came out of that period of time in my life was that I wasn't doing as much of that anger at the world. I wasn't directing that outwards. And it was making me feel a lot more satisfied in my life. And that's a huge basement quality for me is that pessimism, that anger, that reactivity to things that people do out of ignorance. And I'm working on it, but I'm really trying to get back to that because I think it's just it's so much easier to live your life and not be pissed all the time. Yeah, that really reminds me of the Enneagram because they talk about your highest levels of health and your lowest levels of health. And I've done a lot of personality tests. I don't know of many others that talk about that variability within personality types. They're usually like, Mm -hmm. here's what you are. Here's what you are. Okay, I might send you a quiz after to take. (laughs) Maybe we'll be opposites again. (laughs) We might be, which is funny because I think I always thought we were so similar from mentoring. I don't know if I was like projecting that, but maybe it's this level of self-awareness that we have where I perceive you to be someone who is so willing to reflect and to go deeper into your own experience. I could see how you push through things because, again, I I saw you in residency, so I, I get that. That makes a lot of sense. I can push through things, too. I don't know. I I guess I thought if we were going to take personality tests, we would have come out a lot more similar. So that's funny. Yeah. Well, I will say, I think in every personality test, they're doing their best to capture it, but it's not always perfect. I remember when I took the Myers-Briggs, my husband actually sent it to me and he took his personality test and was like, "I." it's funny, I've never seen him quite so excited. He was like, oh my God, I feel like they've really nailed how I feel about myself. He was so excited about it and he almost got emotional over it. Like it was pretty interesting. Like I think it really made him feel validated in a way. And so I was like really excited to take mine. I was like, oh, all right, Mm -hmm. let's do this. And I took mine and I remember getting the results back and being like, there's things that I agree with, but there were also things where I was like, "Eh, I don't know if I feel quite that strongly about it. So I kind of took it with a grain Mm -hmm. of salt. I really see my Myers-Briggs as more of like my lower qualities. I kind of see that as my non-emotional or maybe not non-emotional but more pessimistic data-driven non-sympathetic kind of person whereas if I'm operating on a higher level I can be a little bit more emotional I can be more interested in in cultivating relationships and things like that so I didn't feel quite as strongly as, as my husband did about it it was interesting to see the difference there it's funny that you talk about cultivating the opposite of what you normally do I think that is a huge part of resilience in a way is figuring out what are your pitfalls, your Achilles heel that you are just bound to get into, how you deal with tough times, how you deal with tough emotions. And if you're not sure, ask somebody, which is a great starting point if you can listen without defensiveness. And when I think of a shining time in my life, the opposite was true for me. I was consistently doing something, even though it was tough. It's when I first started Lift, Laugh, Kegel. And I had the idea 
and I was willing to grapple with it and wrestle with it until it became a reality. I remember spending a whole weekend just trying to come up with a name. I just kept going back and forth and asking people I was close to at the time what they thought and going with all these different ideas. And I was consistently working on blogging no matter what. It was a standing non-negotiable date with myself. And I think that when I'm creating and actually producing something, I am definitely the balcony level version of myself. When I am not created for a long time, I am probably in the basement for sure. And it's everything that we just talked about now. It's having a routine. It's sticking with something. It's constantly being engaged with that creative work and putting it forth. And it was tough. I cannot say it was easy or that it always made me happy because I can remember so many days where I was like, how do I put this together? How do I do this? How do I make that happen? And I was also one of the most satisfying and ultimately... I would say enjoyable periods of time that I yeah. had too. I noticed you're using past tense with that. Do you feel like you've moved out of that period and it's something that you're hoping to get back into or where are you feeling like you're at right now with that stuff? Well, you know, with the podcast starting, I think I'm re-engaging with it and I'm finding a new way to do it because I'll be honest, I stopped Lift Laugh Kegel after two years, just about two years. I was in residency. I picked it back up probably six months after residency and I was doing more videos and Instagram posts rather than blog posts. And then I was going to reimagine it into a coaching business or something like that when I came over here and started at Google two and a half years ago. And that's probably when I started releasing it a bit more and doing less and less on there. And it's not that I decided I don't want to be creative, but it was starting to get to a point, probably because I was so focused on the social media that I felt pressured to do it. And I was also dealing with quite a bit of burnout at that time. I had a huge life transition again. I just moved cross country by myself, did not know anybody was sticking around here. And was having a hard time, honestly, with the lack of social connection that I had. So I think my creativity dried up, so to speak, and I didn't lean into it as a way of, oh, let me build more connection. I just felt like it was more of a drain. What am I giving out right now? So I stopped and I really started focusing on self-healing, self-understanding, giving up some of these perfectionistic tendencies, being much more self-compassionate. So I would say I've come almost another step up the staircase. I'm at a new landing where now I'm saying, okay, with the tools that I have and the things that I know about myself and creativity does need to be a part of it, but how do I do it in a way that also reflects who I am now? Because when I was doing Lift Laugh Kegel, I was five years younger. And a lot has happened in five years. So I love the essence of what young Monica was doing. I want to reclaim some of that. I just moved one more time. <laughs> I am on like a two-year move cycle. So there, there are some differences with how I'm approaching things. Life looks a lot different. And I need to make sure that I'm creating that space and I'm keeping that space sacred. So it's a very interesting question. Yeah. 
I think it's hard when you have those things that are so sustaining. The creativity and the creative process that you're describing is so important. But then at the same time, if it's bringing on those perfectionistic tendencies and it's bringing on that pressure, how do you engage Mm -hmm. with that in a way that's not draining and is more fulfilling? And that's a challenge. I struggle with the perfectionism myself. I think a lot of, probably a lot of PTs do. You can't really get into a, a thinking field and working with patients without having some of that, I think. But how do you approach it in a way where you can get it done and feel satisfied without beating yourself up over the details? Right. Yeah, it's an act of, it's a true practice of self-compassion. And I think it's also being more clear on what it is that I, I want to explore or that you want to explore and letting go of some of the seriousness of it. Like it's not all life and death. It's not all going to go viral. It's not about being the most unique and different and reinventing the wheel out there. That's a great point. It's funny. I was telling my husband a couple months ago that I was really excited that you had asked me to do this podcast with you even. You know, it's something that I would never have I would have never have wanted to tackle myself because it seemed mm. so overwhelming. And in my mind, in a lot of ways, it had to be perfect, right? Oh, well, I can't podcast until I'm knowledgeable about blah. I can't podcast until I'm worthy enough, right? I can't podcast because I'm only a year out of school. I can't podcast because I don't have the right equipment. I can't podcast because I, whatever. There's so many reasons why you couldn't do it, but I remember when you had asked me, I was like, well, mm-hmm. I just want to like hang out with Monica more. So I, was like, I was like, well, all right, let's just do it. I think that was like the push that I needed to just try it. And so it's been a yeah. good process for me in that respect. But I definitely grapple with that, even with some of the editing process, right? Like, you know, editing perfectly and getting the song mm. to fade in at just the right moment and not having a lot of the background. And it. it's like very, it can be very frustrating and trying to sit back and go, yeah, it's okay to just take it for what it is and take it for a learning process and not necessarily put this pressure on that it's going to be the biggest podcast ever or that it's going to go viral or that we're going to have people listening and critiquing us. So that kind of takes a little pressure off. So I'm right there with you. Yeah. And I love that we're doing it together. It also helps me like show Mm -hmm. up again consistently and it's helped me realize, yeah, I have to block more of this time. I can't just go day to day with tasks and forget what it is that fuels me the most and that I love. So we went full circle on that. We started with resilience. I think we kept up with resilience by talking through some of our lows, some of our highs, how we combat it, how we choose to draw on opposite qualities of what we naturally get into in the basement, how that helps us rise and show up as a better version of ourselves. And it's been an inspiring hour and a half. I feel like I learned a lot about you today. (laughs) Same. Yeah. And now I'm going to go take more personality tests (laughs) and we'll link those in the show notes. Awesome. All right. Till next time, stay conscious. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Let's keep the conversation going on Instagram at The Conscious Clinician and Facebook backslash The Conscious Clinician. Links are in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and write a review for the podcast to grow our community. Stay conscious, everyone.